Welcome to the latest episode of the special series New VC, hosted by Freddie, an analyst at Isomer Capital and Linda, an associate at Karma Ventures. We have switched the perspective today with our guest, Paul Gillespie. Paul has been working with investors and technology companies for multiple decades as an executive search and leadership advisor, and during that time, worked with a number of tier one and unicorn companies. Paul shared with us his thoughts on the importance of talent in high growth companies and his learnings over the years of how investors can play a stronger role in helping companies hire top talent. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Appiday is the leading all-in-one ESG platform for GPs. Central to Appiday's philosophy is that ESG for your portfolio companies must be relevant and value-adding, making you a partner to your companies, not adding more reporting burdens. Appiday offers AI-led ESG reporting, full SFDR compliance, including disclosure templates, EU taxonomy, carbon accounting, due diligence assessments, and most importantly, tangible tools to help your companies like ESG resources and policy templates. See why over 1,000 portfolio companies leading Article 9 funds and $100 billion of AUM trust Appiday to manage ESG and sustainability across their ecosystem. Take a free product tour at appiday.com or book a no obligations ESG VC strategy session with one of their experts. In a world where podcasts outnumber humans, we try at EUVC to be mildly more interesting. Tune in at eu.vc to watch this episode instead of just listening. eu.vc, where the extraordinary is just another Monday. Hey, Paul, good to see you again. Welcome to the show. And then I was super, super happy to have you with us on this beautiful spring afternoon. How are you? I'm very, very good. Good to see you both again. Absolutely a pleasure. We like to kick things off here talking about superpowers and and, and introducing the people that we have here. So first and foremost, who are you? What do you do? And what is your superpower? I'm Paul Gillespie. I'm a director at a executive search company called Sheffield Howard. We are a global executive search business of around about 250 people. The backstory here, though, is with my co-conspirator, Steve Morrison, building an executive search company called Gillamore Stevens over 20 years. But through those 20 years, we have focused on building out the boards and the executive teams for venture capital and private equity black businesses. The reason we sold out to Sheffield Howard was to plug into their global footprint. They are a financial services search company and wanted to get into technology. And we now have operations in Shanghai, Singapore, London, New York, and San Francisco. My role as director is our lead global deep tech practice, which is focusing on businesses from semiconductors to batteries to uh, satellites, rocket ships, robotics, and at the moment, nuclear fusion as well. But the thing with all of these, they're all early stage disruptors trying to change the world that they operate in. Also, a lot of people always ask, why am I in recruitment? So I'm an electronic engineer by background. So I was in oil and gas, telecoms, kind of fell into recruitment and then went on to build out two exec search companies, sell them both. And as much as everyone says, why didn't you just go away and retire and tend your allotment, which I don't have. It's because deep tech is probably at the most exciting point it has ever been in my whole career. The recognition from investors, the recognition of you can't have your chat GPTs without the hardware that sits underneath it, the need for renewable energies, for robotics, for automation. It is just, for me, kid in the candy store type. And, and I think what we've seen over the last six to nine months is our, the heady world of 500 times ARR valuations in SaaS actually comes crashing down to earth. Deep tech may have been the poor relation, but it's just there and it just keeps on going. And we're just working with a, a French uh, chip company. They just raised 90 million A round first close and probably another 30 million is going to come in on the second close in the next six to eight weeks. So deep tech is, is for me probably the most exciting area of technology as well. And that's why I just can't let go. And what is your superpower? Why do these companies, these 
you know, investors come to you for help? Well, actually, there's, so there's two answers to that. I, I actually was told on Thursday, do you know you've got a superpower, which is slightly quirky on the back of prepping for this. And this may not come into the podcast, but I'd never heard anyone say that to me. But I think, you know, Linda, I, I, I give blood and um, I'm O negative, which is kind of a universal donor for anyone. But also there's something particular about my blood that means it can be given to newborn babies. And that makes it incredibly rare. And it's down to a virus that everyone gets when they're very young. But for some reason, I didn't get it, which means my blood can be given to newborns before they get the immune system built up from their mothers. So not a word of a lie. Last Thursday, I was told, and do you know what your superpower is? It's neonatal O-neg blood. So there you go. But for the podcast, that's, that's a really hard one because I think whoever you are in whatever role, you may not have a door-crashing superpower, but you've got to have a mix of some of those superpower cards that, that you listed there. And you've got to play those cards depending on whatever scenario you're walking into or whatever scenario that you're, you're, you're involved in. But, and I know you're going to say, yeah, but you've got to pick one. So for, for me, I think the one I would pick would be evangelizing because we're working with companies coming out of universities, research institutions, companies that are trying to disrupt specific markets that have been around for decades. And we've got to go out to potential candidates and convince them, well, not convince them, but grab their attention that we're working with a company that has the ability to change the world. And most of the time, and even when I'm pitching for business, most of the time, a lot of these candidates will have their arms folded in the starting point of disbelief. And for me, it's when those arms unfold and then they start answering questions. And then that's when you realize you've got someone's attention. I'm, I'm doing a, a space rocket ship CEO at the moment. And I was talking to a candidate and it was a, you've got 15 minutes, arms folded. I'm not going to be interested. And then we ran out of time after an hour and we, we're now speaking again tomorrow morning. And, and he's not got his bags packed to join the company, but he's now at a level of interest that he wants to talk to the chair and the founding team. So I think that that would be the, the superpower. I think the other one, to a lesser extent, because I think there's always more than one, is problem solving. Because people only come to executive search companies if they normally they've tried something it hasn't worked, or they've had a couple of referrals from the board, and maybe neither of them kind of tick all the boxes. So we've got to go out there and problem solve. And we just done that with the nuclear fusion company, where the board's starting point was, you probably won't find this person which always is a, an interesting start, but we had to start to find someone that would be chief operating officer, but actually the person we found is going to be the CTO of the company and they, they've accepted, resigned, and they're already talking about the next C-level search to build out the exec team. So I think probably those two combined together are pretty essential in what we do, but it, I think it's definitely evangelizing because you get a passion for these startups. We, without being arrogant, will only work with companies we believe in, because if I don't get it and believe in it, how am I going to get the candidates to believe in it? So I think that's really important as well. So it sounds a little bit like that first superpower is more of the sort of sales side of your role and sort of problem solving is more in the sort of operational getting stuff to work. Is that how you sort of view it? Exactly. And, and you can't have one without the other. It's all very well getting someone on the hook, but you've got to find them in the first place. And you've got to develop a search strategy with, with the clients and maybe the client board or the, the hiring committee to actually be as broad as possible and to introduce maybe ideas that maybe the board hadn't thought about. And specifics of something on, we were working for a photonics company and, and we said, look, you're going to look in Europe. You've got to look in, in, in the US. Your clients are in the US. Your potential future investment is in the US. If you're hiring a CRO, why not look in the US for that person? And the view was, but we just want someone in Europe so they're close to the office, but they weren't thinking about the 18 months, two years, where if you're going to take US investors, you've got to have an exact level presence out there. So doing a dual search where you're looking in Europe and America, and then just saying, well, you've got this breadth of candidate pool now, you choose, you know, what do you want to pay? Because that's going to be an important thing when you're factoring in American candidates. But also just compare the skills, the cultural bit, the personalities, because again, they're going to be wildly different, but then see what, what is the best fit for the company as well.
You mentioned some some fairly fairly long phrases and big words there. Can you you know the likes of the hiring committee and and how does executive search work? You know, from start of someone calls you up going, I, I'm looking for someone, through you find finding the right candidate. What does that look like? See, Freddie, if I told you that, I'd have to shoot you afterwards. Here's <laughs> the dark art. <laughs> no, seriously. So look, let, let, let's take, say, a C-level role. So, so normally the reach out will come from an investor or maybe the chair. And in a lot of cases, the trigger is, is say, a funding round. And, it's a, and, and the A round is probably the one where we get most involved with businesses, where you've gone through the, the technology development from the science, probably gone through a level of the industrialization of the technology, and the A round is going to take you to that kind of steep commercialization phase. So it's normally, it's normally at that point that, that a reach out will occur. So the first thing when we kind of get the initial view of say we need a, let's just say CEO, I'm sure we'll come back to you, that's always a contentious one, but let's say we need a, a CCO, chief commercial officer to come into the business. So the number one thing is that we always ask that anyone that's going to have a voice in this hire is involved in the discussion. Because you know, the battle scars taught me, if you don't get everyone in the room at the beginning to agree what we're looking for, that will come back to haunt you later in the process. Because suddenly someone pops up with a, but they don't have this experience, or I really think they need to have done X, Y, or Z. So the really important things is, if someone's going to have a voice in the process at any stage, they need to be involved at the beginning. Now, the downside of that is you have a specification for the, what you're looking for. And then the first person in the room will say, oh, I also think they need this. And then everyone else in the room tries to think of something else that needs to be added to that list so that their voice is heard. So you end up with some crazy list of skills and experiences that just don't exist. So then you've got to pair it back to actually something that is viable to the outside world, removing the godlike features of the candidate you're looking for and being able to all agree around the table, these are the essential things and these are the desirable things. So there's a very clear message on, on the profile that everyone signs up to. So in, in, in the first stage of executive search, that's kind of the discovery and learning phase in terms of the business, what it is they do, why it's different, and actually then outlining what it is we're looking for and is it viable. The second piece is then on us. It's about creating a briefing document that will position and sell the company without overselling it, but just getting people's attention and about building a, a context of the appointment and a job spec, something concise, but attention grabbing that we can then put in front of candidates. In parallel with that, we need to build out a viable target list of candidates, and that needs to be as broad as possible. If you agree with your client that there's a playing field that we're going to be looking into, you don't want everyone from one half or the other or one, one corner of the pitch, because what you don't want to end up presenting in the search is five candidates all the same just with a different name and a different color shirt. That's not going to solve the problem. What you need is as broad and as diverse a set of candidates so that any hire is going to be different, but you get the chance to choose what is the best hire for the company. So the nuclear fusion company, we ended up with two people that the CEO either them to do the job and the board said either of them can do the job, but then they had to sit down and decide what was the best short, medium and long-term hired for the company. And that actually took them quite a bit of debate because either of them could have done the job and done it well, but they were very different candidates with very different backgrounds. And to be honest, that's what we want to put on the table for our clients is the challenge of we have choice, but what's the best choice? So obviously we go through interviewing, assessment, presentation. We manage the whole interview structure, which to be honest is something properly a podcast in its own right. But, you know, interviewing should just be one part of the process. And, you know, there needs to be other elements where you create data on the candidate. Now, whether it's things like psychometric assessment, but at the very least, bringing candidates over the, the night before for a social dinner, just to see how they react in a social environment 
And we always used to, with, with commercial hires like CCOs, ask them to present to the exec team and board as the final stage of their on-site interview. And with all respect to commercial guys, they're slippery eels because they're selling themselves. It's the ultimate sales pitch for them. And you've got to get behind, you know, the smile and understand exactly what's there. So, so getting them, giving them a very simple task where they present and they get challenged in a business Q&A is a really important learning point. And that's where we see the league table of candidates swap around as you see people functioning in a business environment. But now we get every candidate in any role to do exactly that. It doesn't matter whether it's you're coming in as CFO, it's the, what would you do in your first three months? What are the priorities? You still take the candidates out of interviews and put them into a business scenario in a business discussion. And it's a huge, huge learning point. So, so that's something that we will always guide and structure for our clients. And then the, the final piece is, is the referencing both the obvious and maybe through our network. And the key one is this negotiation to make sure that we get the candidate to accept the offer without it going crazy. And as Linda knows, you know, we always, in all of our time of being a search company, we always work on a fixed fee because if we're being paid to hire someone, we shouldn't be getting paid more because you're paying more to hire them. We're paid to do a job and we always work on a fixed fee. So we're always neutral when it comes to the very delicate negotiation stage. And that's good for clients to know, but it's also good for candidates to understand as well. And from your side, looking at who approaches you first, how often is it the investors? How often is it founders reaching out? And, and when is the right time for founders overall and investors as well to be aware of, hey, this might be a time for an exert search agency to get involved? Because sometimes it's too late, sometimes it's too early. So how do you kind of view who should come to you when and what's the perfect scenario? So when I look back and went through um, earlier this year, 60% was through the investors, 30% was from share or independent board members, and 10% from the CEOs themselves. Now that's on the first search. If we do a good job, which we always do, then normally the, the relationship is directly with the CEO from that point onwards. So, so that's the split. And to be honest, it normally comes out of the board meeting or the first board meeting after a round is closed, the new board's assembled. And if there is a requirement, they probably all go off to their pet search companies and we all then come in and we all have to pitch and, and to uh, pitch and win the project. So we don't normally get things on a tray or a plate. Normally we have to go through a process and prove our, our capabilities to work with that company, but also our abilities to go find that individual. In answer to the question, when, do you, when should you have a search company? How long is a piece of string? I, I think I would answer it in a different way. Some of the stuff I'm involved in, in coaching early stage businesses, the thing I would always say to an early stage company, whether you're C, C plus or A round funded, is you need as early as possible some kind of chair-like figure, whether it's a mentor, a non-exec or a close advisor, Someone that's got the baffle scars, someone that's been there, seen it, done it, and someone that could be your sounding board and your challenger on the journey of your business. Because the best time to actually make the hire, it really depends on the specific company. And if you, as a founding CEO or a first-time CEO particularly, you don't know what you don't know. Every day you wake up and, and it's going to be learning and it's going to be journey. So to have someone that is on your side. And with all respect to investors, investors are there with the interests of the company at heart, but also your secondary is your fund. So having a non-exec chair or a non-exec director, or just someone that is close to you as a, as a mentor and advisor, I think is really, really important. In answering your question, they should be able to advise when you need to start thinking about it and, and when is the appropriate point but also then supporting the process of making the really senior and critical hires into the business. On that point of, you know, the point at which you get senior and critical hires into the business, how much of a role does experience play into that at the early stages of venture? The experience of, of, of the people you're trying to hire, going from, you know, a first-time founder or a second-time founder 
with some level of experience to building a team of experience. Yeah. So, so, and, and this is the, the do or die for businesses. It's all, it all matches into this, you know, side to technology, to industrialization, to commercial. So the people you need for all of those phases, some of them will make it through all the phases. Some of them won't. And that includes the founding CEO. And we'll probably come back to that a, a bit later, but this is the, the, t- the absolutely critical transition of bringing in skills and experience into an organization to take workload off of the founder, because he's probably spinning all the plates, but also to bring in the skills required to, to help the company achieve what it needs to achieve. And, and this covers all areas of the business. You know, if you get a, a chunky A round in, you're going to have to have a CFO. You can't have a fractional CFO. You can't have a bookkeeper. But equally, you don't want a CFO who's just a numbers guy in a room with the curtain shut. You want someone that's going to be experienced in the, in the operational scale-up and globalization of the business. And that's someone that will be a wingman to the CEO and will be able to say, have you thought about or let me do that on your behalf? I've done it before. And that's always one of the most critical hires into a business. And whether it's an A round or B round, it doesn't matter. That's always a critical hire. The other comment, and you know, I'm not trying to be simplistic here, but a lot of companies, they will get traction with potential customers with some groundbreaking technology. And they say, we want a VP sales and we want them from Tallis or Siemens or something. And it's like, yeah, but it's not really sales, is it? You don't really have something to sell. It's more like business development. Well, what's the difference? Well, business development is about market making. Sales is we've got a product and we want to sell it to people. So, so you, what you actually need is to bring in someone to lead business development with all of the skills and experience of how to do that. And ideally experience of how to scale into being a broader salesperson. But what you don't want is a VP sales at this stage. And it may be different for a software company. I'm talking more about deep tech here. And equally, you know, we'll talk to founder CEOs and, and they'll say, well, I want to bring in a CCO. And it's like, well, why? Why do you want them to be called chief commercial officer? To call them VP sales and reporting to the CEO. They're more interested in the reporting line. They don't need to be called CCO. And to be honest, if, if you're hiring someone that is a CCO at the moment, they're probably so far away from the front line, they're not going to be of any use to you. So don't give away the CCO title. Bring in a VP biz dev, bring in a VP sales and see who earns it and then give the CCO title because they've actually done something that makes it worthwhile giving them that badge. So this, this kind of focus on, it has to be a CRO, needs to be a CCO. CFOs, yes, definitely need a CFO, but, but do you really need to give away the C levels, you know, to get people into the company? Now you may find someone that is exceptional in that case, play the card, but don't let every candidate that comes through the door think they're going to become a CCO in a company. Whereas really, they're just a VP sales caliber. But oftentimes, and, and obviously you and I have seen this a lot of the time, people try to attract talent with titles and, and cheap labels. But how do you really attract good talent? Like, what is it necessary to convince someone of a higher caliber to join these early stage companies? So number one, there's got to be wow factor. That I, I kind of scribbled down. It's got to be wow factor at the beginning, you know. Something you've got to attract someone's attention. And the greatest thing is when someone says, but that can't be done. And I'm just, well, so for instance, we're working with a micro LED company and we started working with them. They started off as a material company. They were going to sell gunk basically, and other people do stuff with it, but they actually realized they had to build a reference design to say how great their gunk was. So they built a micro LED, which is very, very pioneering anyway at the moment. And they realized that you could put the red, the green, and the blue on a single substrate as opposed to two, which is a holy grail for every display that's out there from phones to TVs to AR, VR. And then these guys, they broke another barrier, which was rather than having three separate colors that you mix in LEDs, they can make one LED any color. And this is like, oh my gosh, this completely redefines the display industry. Well, you go out and start talking to potential candidates for these companies, they're going, they can't be done. And it's like, well, it can, it has been done. And you've got to get through this disbelief of, I know the market, the candidates say, I know the market, I know the boundaries of this market, and you are trying to 
you know, introduce me to a technology that, that doesn't exist or I don't believe exists. So, so this is one of the key things. It's the wow factor. It, it's the attention grabbing of, of the technology. And then it's the technology and product itself is, can it actually make an impact? And when I say that, it's not just technology for technology's sake. We've seen a few tech companies, particularly in deep tech, where everyone goes, wow, that's amazing. But what problem does it solve? And if ultimately you're not going to solve a problem, no one's going to pay you for it. Everyone's going to want it and they want to play with it. But if it doesn't solve a problem, then people aren't going to pay for it. So the, the technology or the product itself. The, the next one is the team. You know, there's got to be a CEO with, with charisma that people can believe in and people want to follow. And, and the rest of the team have to, I suppose, buy into and, and, and portray the values and the vision of what that company needs, needs to be. And then, you know, funding, a lot of candidates will just say, what's the runway? <laughs> That's one of the first questions. This is because, you know, people coming into startups, you know, five, six years ago, there was a high level of naivety. Now, a lot of people have been around the loop once or, or more times. So funding, what is the runway? Who are the investors? And the really biggie, where are they in their fund life? Because people have seen end of fund issues with VCs and suddenly we've got to sell, we've got to sell. So, you know, you've got candidates that are actually pretty savvy now and will want to know and understand, you know, all of those points around funding element. And, and the other one is obviously is there's a job to do, but what is the market opportunity? What is the competitive landscape? What other, you know, companies are spinning out of research institutions? How strong is, is the pattern and the IP portfolio? of the business. So they're kind of the key things that, that we see. And these are the things that we will try and answer upfront in our briefing document when we're talking to candidates, because they are probably the, the key ones that we need to get people to go, okay, I am interested. And these are the ones that we see come up, you know, again and again, when we're, we're talking to candidates. And how much would you push on the role itself, right? There's obviously a job to be done. There's the broader landscape, but as people were very selfish, you know, why me? Why is this interesting to me? And, you know, I've been a VP of sales in this multi-global company, or I've done this there. And so people are very selfish. So how, how do you sell a role or how do you make it exciting when it's, you know, oh, it's a, you know, series A started, you know, startup. So why should I join now? Versus when it's already growing and, and or, or kind of how do you make opportunity exciting? Comes back to the superpower of evangelizing, not, not, not just me, but all, all of the team. You know, we, we internally pitch the roles and talk through the roles before we start approaching anyone. And, and it's not so much, a, yes, it is selling, but it's more, it's more positioning the proposition than selling. Because if you sell, you've got to sell within the boundaries of what it actually is. Because if you oversell, then the candidate's just going to get disappointment when they engage with the company or they see the technology or they see the market readiness and all of these elements. So it's more about making sure we get someone's attention and we can position this in front of them. And if they're, you know, if they're an SVP now and the role's VP, we'll just say, look, you know, and a great example of me, you've worked with them is, is the Finnish company, iSight. You know, they're now 500 people. When we work, started working with them, they were 20. And they literally had the founders at sea level and everyone else was VP. So we were bringing in really senior people and getting them to move to Finland or Poland or London. And these people won. They actually got over the, the hill of, but I need to be called an SVP, SVP, because it was actually about what the role actually was, what the accountability was. And boy, you want to be on board for this journey because it's going to be a humdinger. And that's, that's part of what we've got to do. And that's why we always tell founders, well, founders, anyone is, does it really need to be a CCO? Do you really need to give away the C level? Because this, this is what, you don't want to give it to an external that then fails. You want someone ideally to prove themselves and step up into that role. Now, if it just doesn't exist within the organization. And it, and it needs to be there like a COO to run engineering and operations, then of course you need to bring in the COO. But in a lot of cases, in an early stage business, you just don't want to give it away too early. So we touched on this sort of a few times, you know, you're working with this sort of series A and later 
stages, which I'm guessing is from a financial reason of being able to hire an exec search at that point. What are just the biggest mistakes you see? I mean, is it just poor C-level hiring that you've got to come in and replace? Or is it a more underlying problem than that? When we get called in, because it's normally if someone's done a process, they just not got to hire. They may have gone through a process and, and, and again, I'm not being disparaging to, to, you know, competitors, but we're asked in, but if that, if a search process has failed, we've got to understand why, because just because we're in the room doesn't mean it's going to be successful. But, but the real, the real common mistakes we make, as I said, is about the initial profile of what you're looking for. You know, what is it you actually need for the company? And I kind of scribble down here as the overhiring. So for instance, we, we were asked to bring in a CFO into a company that they raised, I think it's 25, 25 million. And it was, they wanted a CFO that's been a CFO of a company that's done over a hundred million in revenue. And these guys are you're probably a million and a half NRE and proof of concept because they want a CFO that's, that's been where they want to go. They wanted someone that had done an IPO or ideally prepped for an IPO and had ideally been through an exit before. And yeah, you kind of get that. That is, you know, the holy grail of a CFO. But actually, what are you now and what are you going to be for the next two to three years? You get someone from a hundred million turnover company to come into your business. They're going to walk after, you know, six months because there's nothing to do. There's no complexity because you are in earliest stages of revenue. So, so one of the phrases I use when, when we meet clients is you don't necessarily use the term of hiring the CFO, you're hiring a CFO and companies need to hire what's relevant to where they are now. And over the next two to three years, not trying to hire someone for where they want to be in five years, because it's a long road to get there. So the actual pragmatism of what do we actually need now? And what is actually going to help us get from A to B, not from A to E. Now you could look at some of these much more experienced individuals, but there is a much higher risk factor of having someone walk, taking five steps back to take six steps forward over five years. So that's probably the, the, the biggest one. And we've seen companies do this as well. The, the other one is, is, is around CEOs hiring people, but then not giving up the function fully. So we had this in a company where of all things, it was a technical founder CEO. He'd been running finance. He had a part-time you know, finance person. They just raised 15 million or something a round. And we hired in an early stage, hugely experienced CFO. And to be honest, they were lucky to get that person. But part of it was they'd just done an exit. They were open to risk. And it was 10 minutes by bicycle down the road to get to the office. And he really bought into the technology. So this person joined that company and the CEO just would not let go, would not give up at the full CFO function to the CFO whether the chair was making him do it, whether the board was making him do it, we were giving the feedback and that CFO walked in three months. They just said he was like talking to a brick wall. And, and this CEO, in the end, the board fired him because they just realized he was giving all of the traits that you do not want in a scale-up company. But they trashed and lost a brilliant early-stage CFO because of that. So, so they're probably issues that we see or issues that come to mind when we talk about the biggest mistakes. That kind of really well liaises into a question, why do people leave when you hire them? Because it happens. You know, you do your best job, you try to find the best person, but still they walk. So why? Why do they go and what can founders or investors do to avoid that? Yeah, and, and you just touched on it there. What, what, what can people do? People think because someone is through the door and they smile that they're happy. And, and you can't assume that. Whenever we make a hire, we do day one, day 30, day 90, which is number one, were they left in reception? Day 30, you know, do they actually have their laptop yet and their entry card to get in the office? And day 90, are these molehills or are these mountains in terms of like little settling in and integration elements? So, so the biggest thing that we see are, are the board or, or the CEO or, or the whoever is the manager 
not doing the feedback loops with the individual that's hired, because something that may be very small can grow and grow and trigger someone's exit. And, and, the, and the reason I'll exit is, is no one asked, no one listened. And I, and I was saying in my own way that there's a problem here and no one did anything about it. And, and the, and the issue is, is politeness. You know, you may, may have a hire and if they're not being, if they're not going out of their way to be proactive and tell their, their new boss, something is wrong or something's not working, then it is just going to go wrong. But it's normally the boss not having the basic tools of you need to go out for a drink or have a lunch or just open up and let them give a warts and all view of what have you seen? What have you assimilated? What needs fixing? What works well? What, what doesn't? And make sure you address stuff at a very, very early stage. And that means the molehills never get any bigger, you know, in the businesses. But, you know, real world scenarios where people haven't left. I mentioned the CFO because the CEO never gave him the job. Sorry, gave him the, the, the full accountability for the role. You get personal situations where maybe a family is going to relocate. And we had this for a, a COO in Munich. They were moving down from Dresden. And then the hire, his, his mother-in-law became seriously ill. They had young kids. The relocation couldn't happen. So he'd been on board and he was living locally and he'd even found somewhere for the family to come to, but he just says, I'm not going to be able to do this. So he was great. The company loved him. He loved the company, but it was personal circumstances. But also just being very honest, we did a, a, a VP sales for a client and I thought it was a good hire. But I was surprised they went for that person rather than the other person. And literally within three months, they had between them agreed, the CEO and the VP sales, this isn't going to work. And they'd done it off their own volition. And, and it was actually when I was meeting up for the day 90, catch up with the candidate, he goes, we well, probably don't know yet, but I resigned. <laughs> it's like, oh, but, but that was, that was down to, they were talking, but they just realized as much as they thought they were going to you know, bounce off each other and they were very different and there'd be a bit of sparring and everything. Actually, it was too much of that. And they just realized they weren't going to be able to work productively together long-term. So they just timed out within, well, three months. And, and yeah, we, we do a six month warranty on all our hires. So it doesn't matter whose fault it is or whatever the reason we'll come back and replace them. So, and luckily, you know, the other candidate was still in play and they took the other candidate. So it's a really quick you know, clear up. And then other that guy we put in is still in that. So, so, and, and to be honest, you know, if we were a product company and we were sticking things on a forklift truck and delivering them to you and you had a data sheet, you'd always be happy because you know what you're buying. But we're moving humans around and we're putting humans in human scenarios with other humans. So there are a million billion, you know, unknowns that come into play when someone joins a business. So it, it is an art, not a science. You've spoken a lot about the sort of the role in which you kind of have to play to educate founders and frankly, the, the, the whole hiring process and, and sort of in many respects handhold people through it. Flipping it slightly on his head, you know, you said 60% of the people who hire you are the investors themselves. No, sorry. 60% of, of the opportunities come via the investors. Oh, come via the investors. Um, okay. Yeah, no. So normally there will be some kind of hiring committee, yeah. which would be a subset of the board and includes the CEO. And, and that is who we will pitch to. And that is then who we work to as the primary client. And maybe we'll come on to a CEO replacement at the moment, but even in a CEO replacement scenario, the CEO should be there. But yeah, sorry, if I wasn't clear that that was where the, who reaches out and knocks on the door, basically 6% of the time it's investors, 30% it's the chair because maybe they've been given responsibility to drive the process yep. and then the rest of the time it's the ceos doing the reach out directly but what does good look like from from you working with the investors what does a good investor look like during this process part gosh so I, I think i think number one having the investor in the room and being involved is really important as opposed to delegating it away and i think the investor wanting to be involved early in the process to engage with the candidates. So I, I would say, so I'm, I'm doing the CEO role at the moment. So the chair does the first interview, get them on the hook, the interim CEO or departing CEO or the CEO moving internally does a second interview. So you've got the big picture of the board from the chair, 
Then you've got the front line from the, the CEO, whoever's in the CEO slot at the moment. And then the third one is, is the investor themselves. And the investor isn't there just to grill the candidate. They've got to be giving their view of, you know, why did you invest in this company? What is your belief in this company? What are your expectations in this company? But also, what is your financial commitment to this company? You came in on the last round. Are you 100% committed to the next round? And, and what are the, you know, the, the liabilities that you wouldn't invest? You know, what are the triggers that would make you not invest in this company? And then again, it's, it's about the investor being there with a very clear to-do list in terms of interviewing and assessing the candidates as well. And then it's about being a backstop for the process. If the candidate still needs to be worked on to be convinced, then it's really important the investor is still part of that process to help get the candidates over the line as well. So it's as much a pitching and sales process from the candidate as it is from anyone else. It's not the, so what are you going to bring to this company? And the kind of, you know, I'm there to pull you apart because it's not. Every interview needs to be balanced and it needs to be two-way both for the candidate and their due diligence and due diligence of the investors and their commitment is really, really important. And, and talking about investors, it's uh, interesting making the switch now, obviously coming from, from replacing people in teams and, and sometimes founders and CEOs in particular, which were the, you know, most hardest ones to find, the heart and soul of the company. And, and with it comes this understanding, I think, among investors that a founder CEO is irreplaceable, right? That, you know, this energy that comes from them, the passion, the drive, oftentimes they're technical as well. And, and, and so they've built the whole thing. So it's a really tough decision as an investor to kind of think about whether you develop and continue to invest in the founder, hoping that they will make the leap. You mentioned ISI, for example, guys out of university, and they've made the leap, right? They've they've gone to the company to to, to kind of un, unpredictable highs and 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 incredible highs overall. But is it always that? Is it never that? When is it? So what is what is your learning, especially working with deep tech companies? Is it impossible to replace the CEO successfully, or when to do it? So there's always going to be one group where the board has made the decision that something has gone badly wrong. So in that case, it's just simple. The CEO's out, the CEO is leaving, and, and, and you need to come in and replace that person. But that, that's, that's to one side. The whole growth of a company through the stages I mentioned before, you need to see the founder CEO maturing at a speed that keeps them in line or one step ahead of where the company is at. And that is why I, I you know, come back to it is, is having a mentor, a guide or a chair. I, I do this, these coaching sessions and one of my slides is, and I always do it quite early in, in the, in the in presentation is, are you the right CEO for your company? And boy, does that get the arms folded because you've got all these founder CEOs and it's like, oh, well, he's a recruiter. What's, what's his angle here? Because you need as a founder CEO to be developed. And I, I suppose groomed for the A round investors to see you as a viable long-term CEO. And if you are not made ready for that, it doesn't matter how charismatic you are and how huge your aura is, you will be deemed someone that maybe isn't functionally able to take that company forward. So that is why I always say you've got to have someone that knows what good looks like at A round and beyond to be your sounding ball. And again, you know, in the room, I'd say the question that you as founder CEOs need to be asking yourselves is, do you truly believe you are the growth CEO for this company? Do you even want to be the growth CEO for this company? And that doesn't mean you need to leave the company. So in a number of cases, we will see founder CEOs that come to an inflection point where actually a round the investor saying, we're just not sure he's going to be the right person, but by then they should kind of know that, or there should be a chair that can actually handle that discussion because nine times out of 10, you don't want that person to leave, but you want them to be the CTO, which absolutely fits with their skills and their capabilities. And that's why I say, even if you're doing a CEO hire, yeah, you're going to have board members in there, but the, your founding CEO should be there because they've got to have a great working relationship and they've got to have a voice in handing the baton or handing the reins 
to an incoming CEO. So that whole chemistry and, and working is, is absolutely critical. So yeah, the, the chair, the investors, but equally your CEO, your founding CEO should be part of that discussion and that recognition. Now, if the board is saying, we think this person is great, but they are most definitely not the finished article, but they're the spinal cord in this company, we try and move them or take them out. We're going to do damage to this company. Then you've got to think about how do you mitigate a great CEO and the CEO that isn't the finished article. And that's when you bring in a really strong exec team members. And normally, you know, one of the earliest hires will be a great CFO because they can take so much accountability off the CEO's shoulders and let him do what he's good at, which is customer engagement, evangelizing. And, and then the next one is, is the commercial person, someone that's going to come in and help put in place all of the commercial structures required to actually ensure the company can commercialize successfully. You can't commercialize on evangelism. You can't commercialize on, oh, they want another 50 samples. That's not revenue. That's just people wanting your technology to play with it. And you've got to make sure you're, as I said earlier, you're actually solving a, someone at exact levels problem, not just engineers who love tinkering with what you've made as a company. So, so they're probably the scenarios that, that we see. I think that's quite, quite a chunky, nice question to end on. But I say that Linda and I have come up with a couple of questions that we ask each time. Short, 30 to 60 seconds, snappy responses. What are the skills in your day-to-day that have been surprisingly crucial? Simple, being an engineer. So if I'm walking into a research institution or sitting down with an academic that's spitting out the business, being able to ask, ask the questions that actually get them to unfold their arms and say, okay, you're not some like, hello, mate, you know, recruiter that's, you know, got any jobs. It's about building relationships. It's about being able to relate and understand what the company is, what it's trying to achieve. And equally, you know, for me, when, I, when I've got a good relationship with a company, it's as much about getting an exec team higher as it is introducing them to an investor. I think they should know or connecting them with another one of my clients. Because actually, if you're doing quantum interconnectivity, having hollow core fiber as a physical media, you guys should be talking to each other. And, and it's, it's about adding all of those, those layers of value add. What advice would you give to people who are maybe moving for the first time into investment roles? So they might be former operators now going into partner roles. They might be people like myself who are kind of coming up in, in the kind of the VC value chain, what are the things that will make their lives easier as they go on working with their portfolio or overall as investors? Being honest, I can't answer that. I don't know. We get asked a lot to hire into VCs and I just say it's not what we do. So I really, really don't, don't know that world or, or what you guys need to be successful. But in a way, this, I mean, Linda, you're making a great, you know, step across from recruitment into into investors because a lot of the traits are the same in terms of the things I was outlining earlier, you need as a great investor as as much as you do to actually build the boards and exec team. Obviously your job's a lot harder than mine, but yeah, I would say that there's a set of similar traits in that. As coming from the industry now into the VC, what I've been surprised by, and it's actually a really simple thing, and you talked about it slightly earlier, is Knowing the difference between titles and, 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 and skills and roles and how they interact with each other, actually like a really simple thing, but you know, you've seen it. If you work in one function of the company, you understand that function incredibly well and then the intricacies of each of the roles and, 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 and kind of people. But then you don't really know if you work in finance, what's happening in account management in sales or what's happening in the top levels of the tech industry or kind of the tech side of things. So actually that point was really, really powerful in my head is that, you know, we all think that we know what these roles do, but with going two steps deeper and really figuring out what does a VP sales do versus a sales manager or a CFO versus, you know, a, a fractional finance manager again, it's a really powerful tool. And, and, and I think that we take it for granted in, 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 in kind of the headhunting side, but in reality, not many people have kind of that sort of overview. No, and, and, and it, it's something we said earlier, it's hiring for what you need, 
you know, what do you need in the short to medium term? Not trying to go for, you know, for the individuals that may or may not be appropriate in five years time because they're in companies a hundred times bigger than yours. That just doesn't make sense. But in a lot of cases, that could be a starting point. But it's been absolutely wonderful, Paul, to, to have you. And well, before, before, before we stop, yes, because I this thought so I wanted to give you guys some sound bites, which I think are really important for your portfolio companies and, and what they need to think about. So the, just to rattle these off. So I've, I've gone on and on about the, the mentor or guide. Every CEO, every one of your portfolio companies should be looking to have a mentor guide or independent chair. And, and you should make sure all of your CEOs have that person in place for them. Secondly, retention as is, as is important as hiring. The number of companies that try and hire 80 people in a year and lose 60 people, it's a hell of a lot more damaging to a company to lose those 60 than it is to bring in 80 people. But people do not focus on retention as much as they do on hiring. So it's really, really critical to do that. Every company should have a part-time CFO, but also a part-time HR director. So at the earliest stages, put the systems, the processes, the structures in place that are scalable, because if you don't, your company will fall over at some point in the future. And a lot of people have a fractional CFO and, and kind of fumble their way through the HR stuff, but it's a really, really crazy way to save money. You should definitely have that. And as I said earlier, if you're going to go to the extent of hiring someone, let them do the job and make sure they're happy doing the job with the whole feedback loop once someone is in into the business. And again, this is a really simple one. And every startup I, I, I meet does it is if you're going to go and try and attract candidates in the most competitive markets, treat your candidates like investors. And the reason I say that is you will build a deck, present to investors that you probably will actually spend a few, you know, thousand pounds on to have someone prepare it. Why not cut that down and use it as a, as a deck, present your company to candidates? So write a job spec, bolt it onto a cut-down investor deck, send it out as a PDF, and suddenly you are 100 miles better prepared and more professional than every other company that's trying to look for that Java programmer. And it makes the candidates feel special. And you're not spending any money. You're just bolting two things together and reusing an investor deck that gets thrown in the corner once you've done your founding funding round. They are my sound bites for your uh, your CEOs. Thank you so much. That I feel like we could speak for hours on this topic. Super insightful. And yeah, I just want to say just want to say a huge thank you. You've always done you know an above average job in, in training Linda up you know during her early career. It's been a pleasure talking. Yeah, no, it's been big fun. Thank you for listening to this special episode on the European VC. If you love our show, join our community by subscribing at eu.vc. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Appiday is the leading all-in-one ESG platform for GPs. Central to Appiday's philosophy is that ESG for your portfolio companies must be relevant and value-adding, making you a partner to your companies, not adding more reporting burdens. Appiday offers AI-led ESG reporting, full SFDR compliance, including disclosure templates, EU taxonomy, carbon accounting, due diligence assessments, and most importantly, tangible tools to help your companies like ESG resources and policy templates. See why over 1,000 portfolio companies leading Article 9 funds and $100 billion of AUM trust Appiday to manage ESG and sustainability across their ecosystem. Take a free product tour at appiday.com or book a no-obligations ESG VC strategy session with one of their experts.